How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can each make sure that we are uh, cleansed from sin so that we are in a state of fellowship, that we can enjoy fellowship with God and under the uh, ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, as we walk by the Spirit, we can advance and go forward in our spiritual life. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer before I uh, open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's such a tremendous privilege we have to come together to study your word, to be strengthened, encouraged as we study your word and look back over the, the centuries during the biblical times when uh, you worked among your people in the Old Testament and as you were working in the New Testament through the apostles and as you were communicating the important doctrines related to uh, the church age and related to your plan and especially in relation to your plan for Israel. Now, Father, as we come together this evening, may we be challenged in our thinking by what we study tonight and that it may have an impact upon us by God the Holy Spirit and that it might be used in each of our lives to press us and push us forward in our spiritual life and spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're in Romans 11. Romans 11, and tonight, although I thought we'd get here the last couple of weeks, and we touched on it towards the end last week, where we got into the mention of the term remnant in Romans uh, Romans 11. And I pointed out last time that I think this is important. I want to go over the passages, the usage of the term, because I have heard some people within, I've heard people within dispensationalism at times talk about the church, or at least talking about positive believers within the church as the remnant. And remnant is a technical term, when it's used as a technical term in Scripture, and many times it's not used as a technical term, but when it is used as a technical term related to spiritual maturity, it is always related to the believers within Israel. It's not a term that is applicable in any way to to the church. And so we're going to study through that this evening as well as some other things related to the important aspects of the doctrine of grace and hopefully clarify some things that may, some questions that might not have occurred to you, but they certainly have occurred, uh, to other people. And I've heard some objections raised on some of the terminology related to grace, uh, over the years. And so we'll, we'll, we have one of the great, uh, passages on grace here in Romans chapter 11 in the first uh, first part of the chapter. So we're looking at the doctrine of remnant and the doctrine of grace. Now just a reminder, always important to contextualize what we're studying, that Romans is about the righteousness of God. And uh, there are a number of things that uh, Paul says about the righteousness of God, but in Romans 9 to 11 he's relating the righteousness of God to God's plan for Israel and uh, Israel and the church. 
Romans 9 demonstrates the righteousness of God in terms of his rejection of national Israel. It is a rejection not in terms of his plan, but because the majority of Israel, the leaders of Israel at the time that Jesus came, rejected him as Messiah. And that rejection, Romans 10, is based upon the fact that they have neglected revelation. They distorted the meaning of Scripture. And even though the truth of God's Word was near to them, they rejected it. And so this is why uh, God rejects them and puts them under divine discipline. But that discipline is temporary, according to Romans 11. And in this chapter, uh, Paul shows that God has not permanently cast them away, but eventually there will be a restoration of Israel to God. And fundamental to understanding that is to understand the role and significance of the remnant and how that has uh, operated within the history of Israel. And so the question that's raised at the beginning of Romans 1 is, has God permanently cast away his people? And he answers that in verse 2, that God has not cast away his people. That is not permanent that in uh, Psalm 94:14, using the same language, David said, for the Lord will not cast off his people. Now, this is important. It's an important reminder for us because the underlying principle here is the same uh, for, the, for Israel as well as for the church. It goes back contextually to the end of Romans 8 when Paul said, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, principalities nor powers nor things present, things to come, nothing can separate us from the love of God. The objection would be, well, wait a minute. It seems like God has rejected Israel and we're not loved by God anymore. And Paul is showing, no, God still loves his people Israel, even though they are under divine discipline. He has not permanently cast them away. This is the promise from the Old Testament. And the point that he is making here in the, in this section is to establish this foundation that God is true to his word and we can trust him and that no matter what our experience might be, no matter how horrible our circumstances may be, no matter how dark and despairing things might become at times, that's just our experience and we have to learn to trust in the word of God over our experience because God is the one who holds us in his hand and God is the one who protects, provides, and sustains us. And what usually happens is things come along in our life that rattle us because they shatter our, our, our hopes and dreams for things we want to do according to our plan, our agenda for our life. And, uh, and God has another plan and he's trying to get our attention to recognize that it's not about us, it's all about him and his plan. And so, but God, no matter what, how bad things get, God doesn't forsake us. Uh, the Lord said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He always sustains us. And this is true uh, in, in terms of God's plan for Israel. Now, in verse 2 says that God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And so that's always one of those terms that always brings up the whole issue of determinism and predestination and election in relation to eternal salvation, especially as it's articulated within Calvinism. And I pointed out that the concept of foreknowledge in Scripture <clears throat> relates to God's knowledge of what will take place in the future and that he chooses 
on the basis of no, uh, your options are really, and we'll get into this in the conclusion, are really God makes his choice in terms of what happens in human history either apart from his knowledge or he takes into account what he knows will happen. I mean, those are the only two options. He either does it completely apart from his knowledge or he takes his knowledge into consideration. But his knowledge of contingent events in history, what might happen, what could happen, what would happen, what should happen, that is... That includes also what will happen. He is aware of everything. And just because uh, of his, he knows what will happen, what could happen, what would happen, what should happen, that does not determine what he will choose on the basis of the merit of what he knows. I mean, in other words, he, it's really clear from Scripture that he, that he doesn't make his choices on the basis of the intrinsic goodness or merit of individual people. He does it for his purposes, and uh, he either does it consistent with his knowledge or he doesn't take it into account, uh, which makes makes it just arbitrariness. And so, First Peter one two says that that his choice is done in accordance with his foreknowledge. Now, one thing you have to understand within our background, our framework, which is not Calvinist. In Calvinism, for not, God doesn't know all the knowable because in Calvinism, what might happen, could happen, should happen is irrelevant. What only, the only thing that matters is what happens, and that's determined by God's foreknowledge. God only foreknows what he determines will happen. My problem with that is I think that places a limitation upon the omniscience of God. So I tried to chart this out on a graph, and I was going to have a have like a box that would be uh, <clears throat> shaded in that would indicate his omniscience, and I thought, well, that makes it finite. So the only way to uh, do this properly would just shade the whole background because we're only looking at a actually a portion of God's omniscience because God's omniscience means that his knowledge is infinite and eternal. You can't really diagram the boundaries of his knowledge because it goes without end. There's no limitation to the knowledge of God. He knows everything. He knows that everything that could happen might happen, everything that should happen, everything that would happen if certain other things took place. He knows everything, and it is all known to him immediately and directly. You know, God doesn't learn things. He always has known everything. His knowledge doesn't increase or decrease. He's always known all there is to know. And he, and he, as part of that knowledge, you have the subset of his, of all the knowledge that he has, you have his foreknowledge, which is defined as God's infinite and eternal knowledge of what will happen before it happens. That's simply what Prognosco in the Greek means pra meaning before, gnosko meaning knowledge, and it means God knows what will happen before it happens. So this is a subset of his omniscience. Omniscience is related to the thinking of God. As in God's thinking, which is not like our thinking, his knowledge is not like ours because our knowledge is always acquired. His knowledge has always been the same, and it has always been 
uh, direct and intuitive. So it's it's different in some ways than our knowledge, and so it's difficult for us to understand. What happens is when we try to compare our knowledge to his knowledge, it's a comparison of of um, apples and oranges. They're both fruit. In other words, it's both knowledge, but we can't extrapolate to God's knowledge from our knowledge because our knowledge operates on finite cause and effect, which God's knowledge does not operate on because his is always eternal and absolute with no acquisition of new information. There's nothing he has never not known. So on the basis of that, in relation to his foreknowledge, God makes choices as to the destinies of certain peoples within history. As we've seen in our study of election in Romans 9, that this choice in the context of Romans 9 to 11 is not a selection of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for as to, in terms of eternal or individual justification or salvation. It's not a choice in terms of uh, who will go to heaven and who will go to the lake of fire. It is a choice of who he will use, what lineage, what tribal group he will use in order to uh, reveal his grace and, and his revelation, his word, and, and to all humanity. And so he chooses within history to function within certain people, and that's his prerogative as a sovereign. But he doesn't do that in a way that in, in any way which negates their, their volition. It's not a salvation-related issue at all. In Romans 9.11, see, we have in, in, in 9.2, we have the mention of foreknowledge. In 9.11, he says, for the children not yet being born, see, they haven't activated any volition at all, the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil. So it's not related to what they've done. It's not related to the fact that they have or have not done anything of of possible merit, of possible goodness. Not having done any good or evil, why is it, why is it, operative that the purpose of God, that is within history, according to election, according to his choice, might stand, not of works, but on him who calls. Now, that's going to be important when we get there, because it's not based on, not of works means it's not based on human merit. He's not doing it because he foresees some element of righteousness within someone. He is doing it for other purposes. Now, I've paraphrased this a little bit in the bottom section, that the purpose of God, according to his selection of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's what AIJ stands for. Uh, and, and I've expanded that the, the, the uh, election there to refer to that because con- contextually that's what Election, his selection in Romans 9 to 11 is all about. Selecting the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for historic purpose might stand uh, a choice not based on their merits, but on God's determination for his purposes in history. That in taking into account all of the knowable, this is the best solution that will bring the greatest glory 
to God in the context of the angelic conflict in human history. So that just gives us an orientation to, to this issue of election. Now, at the end of Romans 2, Romans 11, 2, he's, he's going to give an illustration from the Old Testament, which we developed last time, and I don't need to go back through all of it again tonight. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? Elijah, the great prophet of God, in 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19, this was the prophet who stood on Mount Carmel and challenged the 400 prophets of the Asherah, the 450 prophets of Baal, to a contest. Uh, who could light my fire? And he built a huge altar, and um, and they were to see who could call down fire from heaven. And that was important because Baal is the god of thunder, the god of lightning. And so if their god is a true god, then that should be an easy thing for him to just send down a lightning bolt and, and uh, incinerate the altar. And so the uh, prophets of Baal and the po- prophets of the Asher... Asherah dance around and cut themselves and bleed and go into all sorts of religious histrionics to try to motivate Baal to um, uh, to uh, light the fire. What's interesting is to watch the behavior of the man of God who's to- totally oriented to divine thinking. See, we live in an era today when people are basically uh, ethical weenies and spiritual wimps. And we've been cowed by the political correct crowd in America that you don't act certain ways towards people who have other religious beliefs. But that's not God's way. That's man's way because man wants an equal playing field. All religions are equal, so we have to respect all religions as being equal. But if you are a prophet of God, you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know that all other religions are shams. All other religions are false. And so Elijah sits back and he says, Dance, scream a little more. He went to the bathroom. He, he can't hear you. He makes fun of them all day long. See, in our human viewpoint, uh, pragmatic culture, that's considered wrong. But it's only wrong if you don't have an absolute frame of reference from the Scripture. If you have an absolute frame of reference from the Scripture, it's just fine to ridicule uh, the idiots. Now, this isn't ridiculing the person that is on the, the man on the street. This is ridiculing the Jay Goulds and the uh, Darwins and the leaders, the prophets of the false system of thinking in, in the country, not the everyday person. And so that's how, what Elijah was doing. And he has this fantastic victory at the end of the day. He doused, uh, virtually submerged the entire altar and all of the wood and the uh, animal and everything in water, calls upon God to to light the fire. A huge pillar of fire comes down from heaven and just just incinerates uh, everything, and it just turns into vapor, just vaporizes the whole whole sacrifice, altar, wood, everything uh, just immediately disappears. And so Elijah is just at the top of his game. He is not, nobody can feel better than he has had the victory of victories. No, uh, the only thing you could relate that to is somebody who had won every Super Bowl for 50 years and just had all all the rings and everything. He's just undefeatable, and he's won the, the magnificent victory. And then, he like what happens so often, pride goes before a fall, and he runs into the threats of Jezebel. 
And so Jezebel threatens that she's going to take his life, and immediately he just has to run away. And so he thinks that God's deserted him. He's all by himself. There's nobody else with him. And he heads off into the desert and has a pity party. And he's he's depressed and he's down. And this is the scenario that, that Paul's referring to in Romans chapter 11. And he quotes from 1 Kings 19, where Elijah says, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they seek my life. You know, it's, it, he's, he's won the big, the big battle, but he doesn't think the war is winnable. And so Paul says, well, what was the divine response to him? God said, I've reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000. You're not alone, Elijah. Quit. Get, you know, pick yourself up. Get over the pity party. You're not alone. I'm never restricted to just one person. There's a remnant, and that's what this describes, is that there are those who are have not caved into apostasy, have not caved into idolatry, have not rejected God. They're, they may be secret, hidden Christians that are not vocal and that you don't know about, but they are there. You're not the only one. It's not, uh, the scenario is not one of defeat. And this comes out of 1 Kings 19.9 and 10, especially the end of verse 10 where uh, Elijah just talks about how he's been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, uh, but the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant and torn down your altars. And the point here that we have to understand that is difficult especially if you are involved in communicating the gospel in the Jewish community, is they see this as a sign of, of arrogance from Christians. But the reality is, and, and, and unfortunately in the Jewish community, many Jews are biblically illiterate, uh, not too different from a lot of Christians, but they, they've never read uh, the Old Testament. In fact, when they read through the Torah, they've divided the Torah into uh, 52 readings called uh, uh, Parashah, and each week, every synagogue in the world reads and studies from the same section, the same parashah, and it's all from the Torah. They never read from, uh, it's developed within Judaism over the years that they, they just never read from the prophets. They never read from Daniel or Isaiah. They're too messianic. It's too, it's, it raises too many questions when your, your weekly reading comes out of Isaiah 53 or Daniel 9 or Daniel 7, and this is, it's too obvious that this is relating to Jesus. And so over the years in the first uh, millennia after, uh, after Christ, that within Judaism, they've, they just changed the readings to get rid of all of these uh, messianic prophecies so there, there, there wouldn't be an issue there. And so <clears throat> when you talk about some of these things with somebody from a Jewish background, they're, they're, they're ignorant of this. But in most of the history of Israel, there, Israel was characterized by apostasy, by a rejection of God, by hostility toward God. There were a few periods when a majority were were believers, but in many periods in Jewish history, the vast majority were out-paganized the pagans. They completely caved in and assimilated to the gods and goddesses of the Canaanite religions and the Phoenicians uh, and others. And so what's, what's left over, what remained, was the group called the remnant. 
And and technic, this is when the word's used in a technical sense when it referred to that group that were believers and were not and had not succumbed to to idolatry. Now, in First Kings nineteen, I'll skip that. In First Kings nineteen thirteen and fourteen, again, there's another section that is quoted. Um, again, Elijah repeats himself. Uh, Israel's killed all the prophets with the sword. He's the only one left, and they seek his life. And God says, but I've reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal. So what we see is Paul is basically just in, in Romans 11, uh, 3 and 4, he's just going back and quoting from this section to make his point that God has a remnant. Verse 5, he says, even so, at this present time, there is a remnant According to the election of grace, this verse and Romans 9.27 are the only two verses in the entire New Testament that talk about a remnant. And both places are talking about the remnant of Israel. Now, in verse 5, it talks about this remnant according to the election of grace, and I'll come back and talk about that with reference to uh, the doctrine of election and foreknowledge in a minute. But first, we need to look at the, the concept of the remnant. And last time, I think I pointed this out, that there are four words used in Scripture. The top two are Hebrew Old Testament words, and the bottom two are the New Testament words. Uh, in, in, uh, in Romans 9.27, we have the word hupa lema. Hupa is the prefix, the prepositional prefix to lema. And then we just have the root word lema, used here in 11.5. Both have that idea of the remnant, that which remains, that which survives, that, that, that which uh, continues. Now, it's used a number of different ways when we get into the Old Testament and we look at these studies. Sometimes it just has a, a, a normal everyday usage to refer to the group that's left over. The group that remains, everybody else is destroyed, and one group remains. We see this in Second Kings chapter 19, two, two verses up here on the screen, uh, 19.4 and 1930, 31, and then Second Kings 21.4. Now, these sections come out of the event that occurs when the Assyrian king has invaded the northern kingdom of Israel in 722, and they destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, and then uh, Sennacherib headed south into Judah and, uh, and conquered several cities in Judah, and then he surrounded uh, Jerusalem and laid siege to Jerusalem. And so it did, that's the context of both the, 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 the verses here and some verses that we'll look at in a minute in Second Chronicles, verse 30. But if we look at Second Kings 19.4... Um, we read, it may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of the Rabshaka, that was the, uh, the, the, the herald, the announcer, uh, uh, the chief of staff of Sennacherib, who's coming out and announcing to the people that your God's not any good, we're going to defeat you, just give up now. It may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of the Rabshaka, whom his master, the king of Assyria, sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. Now, this isn't referring to the spiritual uh, believers that are, that are there. It's just talking about the people who haven't been killed yet. 
those that are left who can still fight against the king of Assyria. In verse 30, talks about the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah. See, the, and, and here it is talking about a spiritual sense, though, because you see the difference. He says, this remnant who escaped the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. Bearing fruit upward is talking about spiritual fruit. And so here within that same passage, you see the word used in a in an everyday non-technical sense. And then in verse 30, talking about... Um, a spiritual sense, also in verse 31, out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and those who escape Mount Zion. But it's, it's more, I mean, the context of verse 30, it's more than just, uh, those who escape. It's the, the it's referring to that, uh, group that because they are spiritual. And then in, uh, Second Kings 21, 14, I don't have a slide for that. We read God saying, so I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies. Now there he's not talking about the, 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 the spiritual or the believers within Israel. He's talking about those who have survived the previous judgments. So it's just talking about those who are left over. So that's a non-technical use. That's why it's important to look at all the surrounding context. And when you're doing a, a word study, we're talking about that in our Sunday night Bible study methods class. That's why it's important to look at the context of every usage because words don't always, even words with a technical meaning, may not always be used in a technical sense. Because remember, for the most part, the Apostle Paul or Old Testament writers are just using everyday vocabulary. Sometimes they'll use it in a technical sense and sometimes not. Now, that brings us to a a parallel passage at the same time as Hezekiah, and I want you to turn there. It's in Second Chronicles chapter 30. And this is a really interesting chapter. We see the use of the word remnant, but it also has a fascinating illustration of God's grace. And that's why I want us to read through this, because this is not probably in that part of that section of your Bible where, where the pages don't show they're darkened a little because you've been reading it a lot. And uh, you probably haven't been there in the last, oh, 10, 15, 20 years, if ever. And this is a really interesting little episode. So Second Chronicles chapter 30. This is at this same time uh, when uh, Hezekiah uh, is, is uh, he's cleansed the temple, he's restored the temple, and now and he's bringing the people back to obedience. This is a reform under Hezekiah. And now he's calling the people back to to observe the Passover. And so in the in the initial uh, introduction here, we read that Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and also wrote letters into the northern kingdom. Now, remember, the northern kingdom at this time had already been defeated and destroyed by by the Assyrians. There was still Jews that lived in the north. There were a number of Jews who, when they saw Uh, what was going to happen, the invasion coming, they left and they went to the south. There were those that remained. Of those that remained, some were killed in the Assyrian invasion. Some were, many were deported by the Assyrians. They became known in history as the ten lost tribes. They weren't lost. God knew where every one of them was, 
And many of them, as I said earlier, that survived escaped ahead of time so that you had members of all of those tribes in the south in Judah at the, even at the time of Christ. And they knew they were from, the, from these various tribes. And even today, there are many Jews today who can identify themselves as being from some of these so-called lost tribes. Uh, so he's writing letters to Ephraim and Menasheh that they should come to the house of the Lord Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. For the king and his leaders and all the assembly in Jerusalem had agreed to keep the Passover in that segment. They hadn't observed the Passover in years. So he's, Hezekiah is, is executing this reform that the people are going to uh, get back in obedience to God. And so they, um, they make this proclamation that every, all the Jews should come to Jerusalem to keep the Passover. And verse 6 tells us that the runners went throughout all Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his elders and spoke according to the command of the king. This is the role of a herald, by the way. We've studied the word uh, or the noun form from keruso, usually translated preach, and it means to proclaim an event. This is what they're doing. This is they are functioning as a herald, and this is this is like the the concept of preaching in Caruso uh, in the New Testament. It's not the concept of having a certain rhetorical style, and and they um, they just go out speaking according to the command of the king. They're sent out to announce an event, and they say, "Children of Israel, return." To the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, then he will return to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. How is remnant used in that verse? Look at that. Those who will, um, he will return to the remnant of you who escaped. There it's not talking about a spiritual group. It's just talking about those who survived uh, the the war, who survived the invasion, who survived the deportation, and you are the ones who were left. It's not talking about their spiritual condition at all, as we'll see in a couple of verses. And he will return to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Now, <clears throat> do you see any interesting words there other than remnant? Notice on this slide, twice the word is used, return. This is a word that that I would hope by now that many of you would automatically key on when you're reading through certain passages of Scripture. It's a theologically pregnant word in that it's the the Hebrew word shuv goes back to Deuteronomy 30 when God says that eventually when Israel's disobedient and they've been scattered to all the nations of the earth, that when you return to the Lord, this is a, a word that basically is the counterpart to the New Testament word, uh, repentance that we've studied uh, recently in Matthew chapter 3. It's the best idea simply to turn back to God, turn away from the idols, turn away from the paganism, turn away from all of the false, false ideas and a human viewpoint worldview that you've been following and turn back to God, turn back to the Word of God. So it's that command to return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, then he will return to the remnant of you. Okay, now let's see where this goes. This is really interesting in the development of this. And then in verse 7, there's a warning. Don't be like your fathers and your brethren who trespassed against the Lord uh, so that he gave them up to desolation. That's the uh, judgment of the fourth cycle of discipline. 
And then verse 8, he says, don't be stiff-necked, don't be rebellious, don't be stubborn as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord. So that yielding yourself to the Lord here is part of, it just means turning back to the Lord. Obey him. Yield isn't some spiritual spiritual word. Um, it's not a word for, you know, yield to the Lord and, and watch out for, by, for, for fast traffic going by. It, it means to submit to God's authority, pure and simple. Don't be rebellious against God, but yield yourself or respond or submit yourselves to the Lord. Enter his sanctuary, which he sanctified forever, and serve the Lord your God. How do you demonstrate that you turn to God? You learn his word, you obey his word, and you serve him. Serving the Lord doesn't always take place today within the context of local church ministries, but a lot of it does. But there's also a lot that takes place outside of the local church in terms of family, friends, uh, where you work, where you play, whatever you do, you have opportunity to serve others. So verse 8 emphasizes uh, turning back to God, submitting to his authority and serving him. Then verse 9 says, pay attention to this, interesting things here, for if you return, that's the condition. It's a, an appeal to their volition. They have free will. They can choose not to return to God or they can choose to turn to God. And he says, if you return to the Lord, your, you return to the Lord, your brethren and your children will be treated by compassion by those who lead them captive. Wait a minute. I thought if we turn to the Lord, everything's going to be great. And God's going to make us healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. No, the, the nation's still under divine discipline. The nation's still being kicked out of the land, that is the northern kingdom. Uh, and, and the promise here is if you return to the Lord, then your brethren and your children will be treated by compassion by those who are taking them captive. They're still going to go to... It's just, it's, if you return to the Lord, it'll change the nature of your captivity. See, the decisions we make spiritually change and impact many other things around us. And when we're obedient and we're positive to the word and we're applying it, it affects those around us in terms of blessing by association. So if you return to the Lord, your brethren and your children will be treated with compassion by those who lead them captive so that they may come back to this land. See, that's that consistent promise through the Old Testament that God is going to restore the Jews to the land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful. That's the key concept here. God is going to demonstrate his grace and mercy. What they need to do is just say, turn and say, I'm going to trust the Lord now. I'm going to follow him instead of the, the idols. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face from you if you return to him. Now, you see, there are three words there that you ought to pay attention to. The first is um, that they need to uh, turn back and return to the Lord at the very beginning. If you return to the Lord, that's the word shoe, the, the blue box on the left. And then at the end, uh, we read again, if you return to him. That, again, is the word shuv, this idea of, of repenting, meaning changing your mind and just saying, I'm not going to chase after these idols. I'm not going to be in a frantic search for happiness. I'm not going to live my life the way I want to. I'm now going to walk in obedience to God. And he will not turn his face from you. That's a different word. It's the word sur in Hebrew, 
which means uh, to turn aside or to leave or to depart. So God is saying that he will not uh, take his grace away from you at this point, but he will continue to be gracious and compassionate with you, uh, even to the point of changing the nature of the captivity of your brethren and your loved ones. So, the runners go out, verse 10. The runners pass from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Menasha and as far as Zebulun. But, they, but look at the response of the people in the north. They laughed at them. They mocked them. See, the, the choice is, are you going to return or not? If you're going to return, then live a life consistent with that, which means you have to obey the law and you have to go to Jerusalem to observe Passover. But what happens as these heralds went out, like many pastors today, and they proclaim the truth of God's word, they get laughed at. They're mocked. Christians are ridiculed. You believe in a, in a, in a recent creation? You believe in, in, in a God who could become a man and die on the cross? You believe in a virgin birth? You believe in miracles? You believe in right and wrong? You believe there are real evil doers in the world? See, this was a, I think that if, no matter what else you think about President George Bush, what really irritated and hacked off most of the liberals in this country is he appealed to absolutes when he called the terrorists evil doers. Now, you can call, you can do all kinds of things, but in the mind of a relativist, to, to appeal to an absolute standard of right and wrong is the, one of the worst sins you can commit. And that's why they got so mad at, at President Bush, because he acted as if there were absolute evil in the world, and he was going to do something about it. And that just just hacked off all, all the liberals, because they don't want to believe that they're answerable to anybody. That's the modern mindset, not just liberals. There are a lot of conservatives that way. They're not believers. Uh, they're only conservative because that appeals to their personality. They don't understand where a lot of these issues ultimately derive. So... The runners are, are laughed at and mocked at. And notice the contrast here. Uh, again, for those of you who are going through the Bible study methods class, and we're talking about structure and we're talking about uh, different things to look for, one of the things that you look for is things that are alike and things that are contrasted. And what we have here is a contrast. Uh, there are those that laughed and mocked them. And on the other hand, there were some, the minority, this is the remnant, the minority uh, humbled themselves. The minority from Asher, from uh, Menasheh and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. What is humility? I've taught this so many times. Humility isn't thinking lowly of yourself. Humility is submission to authority. Humility is obedience. Jesus humbled himself and was obedient to the point of the cross. That's what Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11 says. His, his humility is obedience, proper obedience and submission to the proper authority. And so this is what they do. They humble themselves, they submit to the authority of God, and they came to Jerusalem. They didn't just say, oh, I'm going to do what God says and stay home. No, they did what God said to the letter, and they went to Jerusalem, not because it made them righteous, but because that's what they were supposed to do under the authority of God. Verse 12, we then read also, the hand of God was on Judah to give them singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. Now, here's another one of those passages where people might read this, that God was 
uh, uh, inserting his authority and changing their volition. Not at all. Judah had already committed themselves to reform and following Hezekiah and reform. This is what chapter 29 covers in terms of uh, supporting Hezekiah and the restoration of the temple, the cleansing of the temple, the restoration of the temple sacrifices. The southern kingdom is behind him as almost one person in their obedience to the Lord. There has been a true, genuine, uh, biblical revival among the southern uh, in the southern kingdom and what god is doing here is he's just strengthening them in their already uh, committed decision in their in their the resolve that they have already decided upon and so they have a singleness of purpose to obey the command of the king as the word of the as the word of the lord and so they come together at that particular point now uh, <clears throat> what's interesting is what happens after this. So this, there's some from the northern kingdom who's come south. That's a remnant from the north. And then almost everyone in the south is oriented to God, oriented to his grace and obedient to him. And in verse 13 we read, Now many people, a great assembly, gathered at Jerusalem to keep the feast of, the un, un, of unleavened bread at the second month. See, Passover is the first day of unleavened bread, followed by a week long uh, feast, and all Jews, all male Jews especially, are required to come every year to observe Passover, uh, Pentecost, and Yom Kippur, those three festivals in Jerusalem. Drop everything, leave where you are, go observe this at the temple. Verse 14, we read that they arose, took away the altars that were in Jerusalem. That's the false, the altars to the false teachers. They took away the altars that were in Jerusalem. So you see, when you're oriented to God, not only is it doing what God wants you to do, but it's removing the things that are a distraction to your spiritual life and getting rid of those things that are a holdover uh, from the, the paganism you held to dearly before you were saved. So they removed the altars that are in Jerusalem. They took away all the incense altars, and they cast them into the brook Kidron. Uh, and that's the Kidron Valley that runs through through Jerusalem. Then they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day. That's uh, Passover of the second month. Priests and the Levites were ashamed, and they sanctified themselves. The idea that they recognized their sin, and so they had ritual cleansing in preparation for observing the Passover. And they sanctified themselves. The word means they set themselves apart. It's related to spiritual uh, or ritual cleansing, going through the proper uh, trespass offerings and guilt offerings so that they are ritually cleansed to go into the temple and to serve God and serve the people. And then we come to verse 16. They stood in their place according to their custom, according to the law of Moses, the man of God, the priests sprinkled the blood and received from the hand of the Levites. So that sprinkling of the blood was part of the whole ceremony that depicted the fact that real, real cleansing, not ritual cleansing, but real cleansing ultimately comes from the death of a sacrifice, and that perfect sacrifice would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 17, for there were many in the assembly who had not sanctified themselves. Now, interesting, they want to obey God, but they are ignorant or for whatever reason they in the crowd the whole assembly they haven't sanctified themselves they haven't gone through the ritual that God that the Mosaic law required for them to go into the temple 
And then we're told, therefore, the Levites had charge of the slaughter of the Passover lambs for everyone who was not clean to sanctify them to the Lord. So there, there's an attempt to try to get everyone sanctified. And then we read in verse 18, For a multitude of the people, many from Ephraim, Menasheh, Issachar, and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves. In other words, it would be like us without confessing sin. They had not gone through ritual purification to come into the temple. Now, technically, that is an affront and blasphemy to God. But look at this. This is amazing. They hadn't ritually cleansed themselves, but not in disobedience, out of ignorance. Uh, Yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. See, they're supposed to be sanctified before they eat the Passover, but they they haven't done that. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, and this is his prayer to the Lord, may the good Lord provide atonement. That's the King James. New American Standard, I think, hits it right, translates as a cleansing. Kafar often has that nuance. I've done some studies on Kafar in the past. We've taught this on the past. It's not just, it's not propitiation. It is cleansing as a primary idea in Kafar. Uh, to make atonement, there's cleansing. So Hezekiah says, may the Lord provide cleansing for everyone. He's praying like a priest for the people to be cleansed because they're too ignorant to have properly done it. And, and, uh, and he says, pray that God will, will provide cleansing for everyone who's prepared his heart. See, this is the difference between ritual purity and real purity. Ritually, they hadn't gone through the ritual to be cleansed, but in terms of their their reality, they had humbled themselves spiritually under the Lord and, and, and personally confessed sin to the Lord. So in, in real time, they're spiritually prepared, even though ritually they weren't. And so uh, everyone who had prepared their heart to seek God, that's, that's through their personal confession of sin, the, and then not just any God, but the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. This is the grace of God. The Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. There's no divine discipline for this. God in his grace deals with them in terms of their heart attitude toward him. They've humbled themselves to him, not in terms of the external rights of legalism. Uh, not legalism, but just the external rights of the ritual law. And so this is a great example of God's grace and goodness to his people. And and this is something we lose. Uh, you know, as I read this, I thought, you know, this is overlooked by the, by the liberal theological crowd who wants to say the God of the Old Testament is a hateful God, the God of the New Testament is a loving God. This is one of the greatest examples of God's love and grace and mercy in the Old Testament and is on par with anything you see in the New Testament. This is not some hateful, wrathful God. This just shows that the liberals have rejected the truth of Scripture and just seek to destroy it. Now, all of that had to do with the remnant, but it was fun to get off and talk about grace a little bit there. Now, Second Chronicles 34.9 also talks about the remnant. Uh, when they came to Hilkiah the high priest, they delivered money, which was brought in the house of God, which the Levites who kept the doors were gathered from the hands of Menashe and Ephraim, Ephraim from all the remnant of Israel. And so these are those who had... Uh, had, had, were spirit, the spiritual remnant because these are the ones who came to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. Um, Ezra 9.14 uses the term, but more in a, a everyday sense of a survivor. 
Um, this, he's asking a rhetorical question in prayer to God. Would you have consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? So that's just a secular use of the term. Isaiah 1.9 uh, Isaiah says, unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom and we would have become like Gomorrah. He's using the term remnant here to talk about a spiritual core of believers who because of them, the rest of the nation is blessed and God doesn't destroy them like Sodom and Gomorrah. Isaiah 10.20 it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped of the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord. Again, that's talking about a spiritual remnant uh, uh, in Isaiah 10.20 and 10.21. Isaiah 11.11, great, prophet, great prophetic verse. It shall come to pass in that day. Usually when you see the phrase in that day, uh, not every time, but most of the time in the prophets, that's referring to the day of the Lord, which comes at the end of the seven-year tribulation. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time. The question here is always, when was the first time? He will set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. This is at the end of the tribulation. He will recover uh, the second time, the remnant of his people who are left from all over the world, from Assyria, Egypt, Pathras, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and the islands of the sea, that would be Greece and, and Britain and all the other places that they heard about from, from, from the sailors. When did he recover people? Try to, when, when was the first recovery? wasn't in the Old Testament. The first recovery, I think, is what we see going on right now, which is the recovery of of unregenerate Jews to Israel to establish the nation in preparation for the end-time events. So that's not saying they're right around the corner. They've always been right around the corner, but we're seeing more and more preparation today. As we see today, we have uh, a little less than 50% of all the Jews in the world living in Israel. That hasn't happened before. Um, the paper I'm doing for pre-trib this year is, is an analysis of the history of Zionism from the Protestant Reformation to the present and showing how God uh, works behind the scenes. You see the orchestration of political events, of events within the Jewish community, events within the Christian community, none of whom involve people who know what the other people are doing. But you see, when you look back over history, you see the hand of God in working time and time and time again to bring about the restoration of the of a nation of, of of Jews in the land that he had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not a chance thing. There were many times within that period people thought it was going to happen in their lifetime, and nothing happened. It, it, it took 300 years, 400 years, for that to, to come about. It's not by chance. Okay, so... Romans uh, 9.27 and 11.5 are the only two passages in the New Testament that use the term uh, remnant. So Romans 11.5 talks about Roman talks about Elijah's remnant. We have all of Israel. This is just ethnic Jews, those who are descendants physically from uh, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the vast majority throughout history have rejected God. They've pursued the Baal, the Baalim, the Asherah. They have not pursued the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's always been a minority. And that's illustrated by the white circle, which is the remnant. 
And at the time of Elijah in the north, that's Elijah plus the 7,000. It's a minority position. The vast majority of Jews at any point in history have rejected the God of their fathers. But their choice, God's selection of them, is based on grace. Now, here's what's interesting. The contrast here is between grace and works. And we have to think in terms of what does works mean? Now, there are some people, and I've talked to some of these pedantic types among theologians and seminary students, who try to think that anything you choose to do is a work. And, and sometimes the Bible uses the term work for in relation to a decision. But that's not what the context in these passages is talking about. It's talking not just about doing something or even making a choice. It's talking about doing something or making a choice that is considered to be uh, meritorious, that, has, that brings righteousness to the one who does it, because the act or the choice itself is considered meritorious. But what Paul sets up here is a contrast between grace and works. And it's either one or the other. This is one of the great passages. Grace excludes works 100%. Works is trying to impress God by anything that we do, that some choice we make or some act we perform somehow uh, brings us uh, meritorious righteousness. And it's, it's either grace, which means God does all the work and we accept it, or it's works, which means somehow we think that what we think or what we do or what we choose uh, impresses God. It's one or the other. Paul thinks very clearly here. It's not a little bit of this and a little bit of that. God's not fuzzy-wuzzy up there in heaven and uh, saying that, well, he mostly wants to do the right thing. So, no, it's either one or the other. Grace excludes works. Works excludes grace. In the last part of the verse, he says, if it's of works at all, one little bit, one one millionth of one percent, it's no longer, of, uh, uh, if it's uh, one one hundredth, one millionth of one percent, it's no longer grace. If just one little speck of works is in there, it destroys grace completely. That's why Paul says if somebody preaches another gospel than ours, a different one that's not based on grace, let them be accursed. And this term there is very strong. He's basically saying, let them rot in hell because they're teaching a false gospel. Uh, so it, it's, a, it's one or the other. And this is the issue with Israel, as stated earlier in the previous chapter in Romans 10, 3 and 4, where Paul uh, indicts the Jews of Jesus' generation who rejected his message of grace because the Pharisees thought that they could merit God's favor by doing this external uh, religiosity. And so Paul summarizes it in Romans uh, 10, 3, and 4, for they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, which is absolute, that's what they, they were trying to redefine God's righteousness, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. This is what makes works works. It's not just doing something or believing something or making a choice. It's thinking that that brings righteousness to a person. It establishes their own righteousness apart from Christ. For Christ is the end of the law, the focal point for righteousness, that is, to everyone who believes. So how do we conclude this? I've got about six points here that I'll run through real fast. I want to come back. We'll hit them again next week. Grace and works are contrasted. They're mutually exclusive, one or the other. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. 
It's the work of God. It's the grace of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Second point, grace means that the honor, the effort, the merit belongs to God, not to the individual. The, the honor, the effort, the merit belongs to God, and the recipient has done nothing whatsoever, no choice, no action, no mental attitude to merit or cause God to give it to them. Okay? It's totally, I mean, the merit isn't there. So within Calvinism, they want to make faith meritorious. And that faith is what God gives you, gives the elect, and that's why only the elect can have the right kind of faith. But that's not what Scripture teaches. Faith is non-meritorious. It's like a tube. It's what's at the other end of the tube that has the, the, the merit. And the merit comes through the tube because the tube is grace, and, and the believer has, has trusted in God and put that tube in place. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Third point, works is not to be understood as simply doing something, but doing something that's considered meritorious in and of itself and producing some righteous quality within the one who does the act. And this is what works does. If they, if they go to church, if they get baptized, if they uh, repent in sackcloth and ashes, if they pray seven times a day, they're doing something that brings merit to the individual. Fourth point is in God's plan, sin destroys the ability of the sinner to ever perform anything whatsoever that creates a meritorious righteousness in the unbeliever. It's impossible for a human being who's a descendant of Adam, who's inherited sin, and who is, has committed sin to ever do anything that's going to have any merit. Fifth point, Bible says all humans are sinners and fall short of God's character. Their best is filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6, all our works of righteousness are filthy rags. Not our works of unrighteousness, but righteousness are as filthy rags. Isaiah 53, 6, uh, the, the servant came to bear the iniquity of all that he might justify all. In Romans 3.23, all have, uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and sixth point, the final one, only God can provide the merit. This is done through the crediting of righteousness and justification. And the key verses are Isaiah 53.11, where God says, God shall see the labor of his, the servant's soul, and be satisfied. God is propitiated by the work of Christ on the cross. By his knowledge, that is God's knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham wasn't declared righteous because of what he did. He was declared righteousness because he believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The New Testament says for in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for he, that is God the Father, made him, that is God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then Titus 3, 5 says, It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's God's grace. It's not. It removes all of that guilt, everything from us. It's not based on who we are or what we've ever done. It's based upon what God did in his love for us in sending his son to the cross who paid the penalty for our sins. It's a free gift. So God's righteousness is freely given to us who believe, not because, because we believe, but it is through our faith that we receive the grace of God. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study this evening and to, to uh, be reminded of your goodness and your grace to see that this is exemplified throughout the scriptures.
all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, and to realize that, that there is also a place for obedience, but it comes after salvation. As we have turned to you, we are to live consistently with that belief. Not because it's part of our salvation, but because as members of a new family, we have a new honor code. We have a new way of life that's been given to us, and we need to live that way in order to honor you and to demonstrate our own gratitude for your uh, love and the salvation that you have given us. Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we've studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.